a project has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And what's odd about it is when it ends for the company is when it starts for the customer. Welcome to Modern Business Operations, where we talk with leaders about how ops is adapting to our modern world. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining today and welcome to another episode of Modern Business Operations. Today, I'm joined by Layla Porhashimi, CIO and VP of Technology BizOps at Blackhawk Network. How are you doing, Layla? Very well. So happy to be here with you today. Yeah, thrilled to have you too. Today, we're going to be talking about agile transformation at scale. I have a couple exciting announcements here at the top of the call. For the first time, we're taking the Modern Business Operations podcast on the road. So we're going to be doing our first live show at OpStars Conference in the Bay Area on September 22nd. So if you're in the Bay or you're going to be at OpStars or even Dreamforce because it's the same week, stop by the Mint at one o'clock on September 22nd to listen into a live recording of Modern Business Operations. So now I want to talk about our awesome speaker here today, learn more about you. Leila, can you just start us off by sharing a little bit about your background? Absolutely. I currently serve as the uh, Chief Information Officer here at Black Hawk Network. I basically leverage my role to spur enterprise-wide transformation here, drive a lot of efficiencies in both the pace and the precision of how we develop our products, enabling business agility, There's a lot of organizational complexities to reduce in our ecosystem and really just all in service of helping the company and our team scale their innovation around the world. Prior to this, I led a number of different transformations in a number of different companies. The diverse spectrum would include things like electronic gaming. So I spent some time at LeapFrog, which uh, the parents of young kids hopefully are aware of that brand. Also worked in telecommunications way back in the day at Sun Microsystems and then both e-commerce and payment companies as well with a pretty large stint at PayPal, where I had the pleasure of leading a large scale agile transformation there for our global teams. And we had 11 development centers around the world. And of course, I think everybody's familiar with what PayPal is and, and what they do. So I had, I had the honor and privilege of leading an enterprise transformation team there for several years. And that's probably my largest and, and first large scale transformation. Yeah. And I definitely want to talk a lot about that today because obviously it directly relates to our topic. I I love what you said that the role of a CIO is essentially to reduce complexities. You distilled that down really nicely. Any ops professional listening in, whether they're at that level or not, can can relate to the, the need to reduce complexities. So thanks for distilling that down so nicely. Speaking of your current role at Blackhawk, what mm-hmm. does Blackhawk do? We are a leader in a fintech company. We're a leader in global branded payments. Most people probably have used our products. We're not always a household name, but we are essentially in the gift card and branded payment business. We enable cash-in options, seamlessly transferring money from different stored value, both physical and digital channels. We operate in 28 countries. We're based in the San Francisco Bay Area. We're really driving kind of the future of emerging payments And it's a really exciting space, I think, that has been fueled by the pandemic with the adoption of a lot more 
digital payment methods. It's just accelerated, I think, the transformation to digital in ways that we could have never really imagined probably in the past. You know, barcode payments, QR code payments are now quite prevalent in everything we do. It's, it's, It's become part of mainstream, which has definitely accelerated, you know, the growth there. We started out as a division of a grocery store called Safeway. And later expanded into a a standalone company that does what I just described. And over time, we've now grown. We're over 20 years old as a company. And we're now operating in 28 countries. And we have, you know, maybe 400,000 or so channels that we touch. And it's really this incredible, incredible network that we have created between our partners and our brands. That's a really interesting origin story. I've never heard of a technology, especially a payments company coming out of a grocery store. How did that happen? Well, back in the day, I'm told I, I wasn't here that time, but we're, we're fortunate that one of our founders is currently serving as our CEO. So she's had the whole experience here. You know, I think I think at the time they were innovating and trying to come up with a way to leverage the square footage of, of their store in ways to deliver more profitability. And so what you see now with the, with the carousel of, of gift cards was actually innovated on and, and developed during that time. And for a lot of reasons, including wanting to expand the business and if it's buried in, in one store, then competitive stores would be less likely to want to adopt that product base. You know, it was decided that it should be a standalone company and it spun out and was a public company for a while. We're currently a private company again, but we now have many, many, many partners around the world who are both in the retail and in the digital space. Well, that's great. Private companies are more fun to work for anyway, I always say. Yeah. That's a really cool origin story. I had no idea. I want to dig into PayPal, but before I do, I want to remind our live audience listening in that Layla is here to answer any questions that you have. So you have a question, drop it in the chat. We'll get to them as they come in. Highly encourage you to take advantage of having access to her knowledge in lifetime. You mentioned you've driven large-scale operational change for years at PayPal, now at Blackhawk. So what has been the biggest challenge associated with that? Well, there are many challenges, but I would say the single biggest and more, most prevalent one is leading change through influence. It's usually a situation where the majority of the people that will go through the change and will need to enact the change are not directly in your team, right? And so it's about influence. It's typically about influencing peers, sometimes folks more senior to you, sometimes the company's leadership. And the direct team that's actually responsible for the change is often quite small, very small in comparison. And so it's really about leading through influence and figuring out how to capture the hearts and minds of the people. And I, what I tend to do is spend a lot of time on the what and the why. The how and the when, you know, is, is a lot of what, especially in operational roles, people get into. But if you don't really understand the what and the why, it's really hard to, to be enlisted into that change and to help lead it and drive it at every level of the organization. So the, what, that's what I do. And I spend a lot of time bringing a group of champions together typically, who we can spend more time with as my direct team, we can kind of influence the champions. And then we kind of use scaling to scale the the transformation across, because if those champions each touch 10 or 20 people, then they've touched the whole company. 
And so that's definitely been a way to lead through influence, use others' influence to fuel the change. And when you start that process and you start with the what and why, do you try to find something that's compelling to that individual so that you can kind of cater to that? Or how do you approach that? Absolutely. It's about the typical things. It's about, you know, reducing waste, ensuring that we are delivering things in line with the needs of our customers and our own business, whatever company we are in. It's about making it easier to get stuff done. Removing friction from our team's abilities to deliver helps create more engagement for employees, uh, helps deliver more value sooner to the market and to the customers. And also, you know, the origins, the origins of the word, you know, agile, the ability to pivot with changing market conditions and changing business dynamics. That's definitely a, a key point that you're always going where the puck is going not necessarily where it's been. That's really, really important as well. And what you want to do is sort of capture the essence of a larger company, as was the case at at PayPal, but with the maneuverability of a small company. And that's a really, really important paradigm, I think, that that you want to use the resources of a large company. And I mean, I mean, their reach of business and their global footprints and all those things. But you want it to feel to the people working there and the way we deliver products that it, there's a lot of autonomy, mastery, purpose, et cetera, and the ability to, to know what outcome you are driving for the customers and for the business. That creates far better solutions, I think. I love that what you said about creating autonomy for the people involved and running it like it's a small business. But I also imagine that's very difficult to achieve once you hit a certain size. Absolutely. And there's a lot of different ways to scale. I think that making clear who who was responsible for what and trying to push decision-making down to the folks closest to the work, mm-hmm. um, make it clear what what their jurisdiction is and, and, and how to, how to enlist the help of others when they feel they can't make a decision by themselves. I think that's, that's an important part of this as well. One of the examples here at Blackhawk, we call it our agile evolution, um, different names and different companies, but it usually ends up, you know, being, being similar problems that we are trying to solve is how do you, how do you unlock the ability to pivot and create new products and new technologies with the demands of the market and the business while while enabling stability and that sense of a high-performing team for the folks actually delivering the work. So that's that's one of the, the big unlocks. Another one is around moving from a project mindset to a product mindset. Hmm. That ends up being super key because this is one of the things we used to say, actually, when I was at PayPal, a project has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And what's odd about it is when it ends for the company is when it starts for the customer. Mm. You've shipped it, right? And then the whole power of agility is that you want to iterate based on customer feedback. And if the project has ended and if everybody's sort of moved over to their next project, well, who's there to even care about and catch that feedback that's coming right. back? You then have to spin up another project and another team, and maybe it isn't the same team that started. So there isn't the stickiness of feeling engaged. You know, one of the things... I try to come up with these little catchy phrases to help people remember. I call it the hugging principle. You need to hug the customer and the code. 
<laughs> right? And if you're organized by projects and not by products, you keep moving on. So you don't have the ability to create that relationship and that power of iteration. And, you know, you run this podcast, right? So you've done this many, many times. And I'm sure you've made little tiny adjustments and improvements every time you've run it to make it go mm-hmm. as smoothly as it's going today. Mm-hmm. Well, teams that are organized around projects never get the benefit of doing that because they move Mm -hmm. on to something else. And so being organized around products means you continue to build on what you have delivered and you keep building increments of value and value on top of that. And you understand the customer's problem statement so that you can actually innovate around that and not necessarily a solution that they think is the right answer. Sometimes that's not where it should go, right? So the teams that are able to engage with those products and customers on a longer basis find that they're able to deliver far more value. So true. So many gems in what you just said. The hugging principle will definitely stick with me. Going back to what you said a little bit ago about the ability to pivot, PayPal has pivoted many times and sort of kept up, I would say, and almost led the market in a lot of the payment space. So how have you guys been able to achieve that? I'm no longer at PayPal. Uh, It's been a while since I was there. But what I would say is during my time there, it it was definitely the case that There was a lot of things we could work on, but choosing what you work on and prioritizing, I think, is key. You know, in a large company like PayPal, we had divided into multiple different product lines and they made they made decisions depending on their area of the business and the product line at that time, how they would sort of prioritize their work at a smaller company like where I am now at Blackhawk. One of the ways that we've addressed your point is we have a single stack rank of work for all of our product and engineering teams. So no matter who is asking for which thing, it's going to be on the stack rank and it's all it's all encompassing there. So, you know, the breadth of that might be a product feature that we are launching for a customer. If I'm deploying a new technology to the cloud as a CIO or changing something in a data center or something like that, that's also on the stack rank because you never know who is a dependent team that cuts across those. And so it's a massive simplifier back to the complexity thing we were talking about earlier to have a single stack rank. What that does is it enables any team who is dependent on any other team to know who should go first. Because where they fit in the stack rank with those bodies of work essentially resolves those conflicts. You know, one of the things back to the complexity point is I like to think that leaders need to take on the complexity so that they can enable simplicity for their teams. And by taking on this difficult sort of head-on collision work of organizing around a single stack rank of work, we take that on up front. And what that means is teams can make decisions feeling empowered based on those company-level priorities that we already decide. And we actually do that currently eight times a year. And we have the chance to even affect those even between the eight times a year. So we do it quarterly and mid-quarterly. You know, if there's an exception or some change needs to happen to re-rank something, we even do it in between that. And that that kind of maintains the ability to pivot that you were just mentioning as well, but also ensures everybody is lined up to actually finish things. One of the things our Agile coaches say is stop starting and start finishing And it's really important because you can't bank that value for the customer or for the company when you haven't finished delivering. And we often start a lot of things and we don't finish a lot of things. And then it's all sort of hanging and that's, that's waste, which is one of the key things we're trying to eliminate. Yeah. And that's human nature almost to start a bunch of things and and not finish them 
which is not conducive to success in business. This episode is brought to you by Tonkin. Tonkin is the operating system for business operations, providing businesses with the building blocks to orchestrate any process with no code or change management required. Contact us at Tonkin.com to learn how you can build complex processes fast. And if you're interested in staying up to date on all things business operations, join the Adaptive Ops community at operations.community. We have a question here from our live audience, Mr. Javi Alonso, who is an amazing member of the Adaptive Ops community. How's it going, Javi? He says, hi, Layla. Thanks so much for this. Love what you said about focusing on the what and why. I'm curious what advice or experience you have for orgs that are scaling and still preserving the magic sauce and culture that make the org a unique place. Yeah, that's a great question and great to meet you, Javier. I think what's key is feeling attached to the work that you do and the value that it delivers to the customer. So, you know, engineers can write code for anything. Product managers can define, you know, requirements and scope for anything. But what is their why? What is their why? And one of the simplest ways that I found to kind of bring that question to its head is, what's the customer problem you're trying to solve? Everybody has a customer. Even internal teams have a customer. There are people upstream and downstream from you, even if you have an internal facing role, right? And so it's really important to know what is that customer problem you're trying to solve, right? And then what are the range of solutions and possibilities that might work for that problem statement? And then you evaluate those based on their merits, run a quick experiment, you know, less talking, more doing, That's definitely something because there's a lot of debate inside companies and the larger they get, the more debate sometimes there is. I think if we can just get to data a little bit more quickly, right? So that it's less about opinion and it's more about data. What could we try in a week that would give us a signal as to whether this is worth pursuing further? You know, a lot of the ideas from from the lean startup and those types of, you know, I mean, that's now become a a fan favorite uh, book, I think, over the last several years, you know. What is something we could learn that would give us an indication of whether this is worth doing rather than sitting inside our four walls and just throwing our opinions back and forth, right? What's something we could build quickly, get a signal, you know, and you can get a signal in so many ways. You could walk down the street and just, I mean, it depends what your product is, right? But you can walk down the street and ask people's opinion about, you know, a sketch you've drawn on a piece of paper. Would you click on this button or would you click on that button? What does this mean to you, right? We don't have to debate about, you know, the placement of something on a web page or what color it should be or whether this link should go to this other link or whether all of those things can just be tested super quickly. And so how do you get to building something quickly that can be tested, that gives you a signal that tells you what to do next? And that's this power of iteration that I think helps people find their what and why and create that engagement. And when people are engaged with their customers, they just feel very differently about the work that they do. It's a really good point. And you know, what you said about less talking, more doing and getting to the data sort of relates to focusing on products, not projects, right? Yes. Because if you're just focusing on your project, then you're kind of spinning your wheels and not not getting things done, right? Absolutely. And not iterating. Projects are around deliver feature X, Y, and Z, right? Why? Why? Maybe you don't need any of those features. Maybe something you've already built would solve this problem. Agile at its essence is about delivering the maximum value in the available time with the available people. And Mm -hmm. I think one of the other related 
on blocks to this is we've got to start valuing value and not valuing effort. Hmm. So sometimes doing a very small thing can release a large amount of value. And those are those nuggets that we encourage the teams to explore. That's a really good point. We actually had a great example of that recently at Tonkin. We moved the trial button to our main page and it took Mm -hmm. like two seconds and it just like increased our trial usage and led to more demos. So yeah, great example. Just quick little change, tested it out, see what happens, continue to iterate. Yeah, I love that. I want to kind of ask you, where else do you apply agile principles in your life outside of work? Oh, you know, once I kind of fell into this mindset, I think it's affected every part of my life. We were just talking about value and value. So I'll, I'll make a real world example of that. Hopefully the audience out there can resonate with this. So say you have a kid and they need to prepare for a test, right? Valuing effort would look like, you know, hey, mom, I spent two hours preparing for this test. So I'm good, right? Good for tomorrow, right? Valuing value would look like I took the chapters where I'd scored less than 80%. And I reviewed those example problems and made sure I knew exactly how to deal with them. Now, that might have taken 20 minutes or might have taken four hours. It wasn't about the effort. But the value was I understood a bunch of stuff, so I wasn't worried about that. The parts I hadn't understood were the ones I spent my time on because that's the highest value in order to ace the test. And so it moves the equation from effort expended, therefore success guaranteed, which it isn't, to value. You know, you have to think about if I have an hour, right, what's the best thing I could do to be best prepared for this test? If I have a week, what's the best thing I could, you know, the time scale changes, but you should always deliver the maximum value in the available time. And it applies to all parts of our lives. And I think when you start to think about it like that, it really changes your perspective and in your personal life too. Yeah, it's like a uh, evolved version of work smarter, not harder. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. So one other thing that you talk about is, which I love, is the last responsible moment in decision-making. Can you just elaborate on what you mean by that? Absolutely. You can Google it. It's a term. I'm a storyteller. And here's, I will explain it in the following way. First of all, it's defined as the point at which you have maximum data while preserving maximum optionality. That sounds a little odd. So let me, let me paint the picture. You're driving down a freeway, right? And you are in the fast lane because that's where you like to be. And you know you need to make an exit. And it's a large freeway, right? So it's like five lanes across and you're in the far left. And and this is a place where the exits are on the right. So you might start to gently kind of move your way across these lanes and get into the right-hand lane about five miles before your exit. Okay. At that point, you had maximum optionality because you could be very deliberate and, you know, thoughtful in the way you moved across those lanes and get yourself into position five miles before your exit, right? Now, didn't have maximum information. because so what you don't know is a big rig crash two miles ahead and several of the right-hand lanes are blocked. And if you just stayed in the left a little bit longer, you might have avoided all that and then kind of scooted over after it. So that's one example. If you wait till you can basically see those like sand barriers right in front of the concrete, right? And you screech across all five lanes, 
Now you didn't really have optionality. You might kill yourself and others or have to cut across, you know, the dirt to make your way to the exit. Not so smart. But you had maximum data. You knew you'd passed all the slow pokes in the right-hand lane. So those are the two extremes, maximum optionality and maximum data. So how do you balance that? I mean, we all do this all day. That's why I'm telling you the story. Half a mile to a mile before the exit is the balance because you know you you have time to safely make your way across the lanes. You also can see far enough because of that distance because you can't see five miles down the road, right? You can see far enough to know that you're not going to hit some big obstacle or, you know, a box fell off a truck in the right-hand lane or whatever it is. So you have you have quite a bit of data about what's ahead of you. And you can safely execute your exit while not stressing any other drivers out or causing other accidents. So, I, so that's the last responsible moment. And what's really odd about this principle is we think all decisions should be made super fast. Quick, decide, decide today. Do you need to decide today? The equivalent of that would be moving over five miles early. It isn't always great to decide quickly. Deciding at the last responsible moment is what you should be trying to optimize for. This applies to personal life too, by the way, right? Mm -hmm. Do you really need to make a decision right now for next year's summer vacation? Maybe you do because it's a place that gets booked up a year in advance, but maybe you don't. Mm-hmm. Let's see where the pandemic's going by that time. Let's see if anybody's going to have a fire sale on airfare and hotels. Like we don't have to commit right now. The prices will tend to go down if you wait a little bit because they'll see what rooms haven't filled and you can grab a better deal, right? That's a last responsible moment. Now, if you want to go to a very special place and all the flights are booked and all the hotels are booked and you can't go, you waited too long. So you have to sort of balance this and it can apply to everything. It's changed my life for sure. I love this so much. I love the question, do you need to decide today? Because I try to decide everything all at once all the time, even in my work. And it's not always the best method, right? That's right. Yeah, so true. Thank you for that. We only have three minutes left here, but I want to talk more about you as a leader. You're a proponent of women in tech. So I just want to kind of ask you how you've raised awareness of the lack of gender diversity in tech and sort of what are your thoughts on the current gender diversity in tech? Well, I will first admit that I felt that I had not been affected by this at all. I was fortunate enough to be in in eBay and PayPal. They were one company at that time when I was there, where the company invested in an internal women's conference. And my perspective was completely changed as part of that. I think it was in 2011. And what I learned was that I'd been deeply affected, but I hadn't been aware of that. And I'd say, you know, this is this is a much longer story, but I would say the two factors that I'd been deeply affected that about, but sort of blind to, were the conscious and unconscious bias that many people often experience, and certainly women in tech also experience. And and a related point is the likability tax. And the likability tax is, you know, there's a very interesting story, if anybody wants to read it, it's called the Heidi Howard story. Actually, it's about a Silicon Valley executive by the name of Heidi Roizen. And there was a, I think it was a Columbia Business School study that was done about this, where essentially they changed one name in the in the case study, Heidi to Howard, And both men and women felt that those leaders, both Heidi and Howard, were both effective, but they liked Howard a lot more than they liked Heidi. And it was actually Heidi's story. And all that the case study, you know, organizers had done is changed the one name 
from high. But what's really interesting is both men and women felt that way. And that's the likability tax. You know, a woman who is assertive and has data and hopefully a decent education, great skills and experience and all that is respected for what they do, but not often liked. Whereas a man exhibiting the same things, and this was literally a written case study is what they did. So there was none of the, you know, the the intangible sort of factors. It was, you know, it's not like whether you like my red shirt or not. It was, it was very, you know, it's just a written case study. Um, they liked Howard more. They thought he was more effective. It was actually Heidi's story. It's crazy. Just Google wow. it. It's amazing. It's really amazing. So, that. so since then, I've put it out there that I will sponsor and mentor both men and women. I will help them find their voice. I will help them be heard because those are different things. I will make sure that they put their hands up for the difficult, you know, assignments and that they are mm-hmm. celebrated when they succeed there. I try to bring data to decision making. I, I insist on a diverse slate. When interviewing candidates for a role, I also insist on diverse interviewers because mm. both sides need to have that diversity in order to catch all the different nuances and people's skills and experiences. Correct. And one of the statements I say often is diversity of skills and experiences leads to better business outcomes. I try to make a point of saying that several times a week, and I think it makes a difference. Just hearing someone say that reinforces it in your mind and you know, it starts at the top, right? So it's it's lovely to hear that you prioritize that, it really is. And with that, we're out of time. I could talk to you for forever, but I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to talk to the adaptive ops community and the larger ops community. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you before I let you go? I'm on LinkedIn. Hit me up, send a connection, a message. Uh, I respond daily to those things and I uh, would love to be connected with this community further. Awesome. Well, thank you, Layla. It's been really fun chatting with you. And thanks everyone for listening in. Have a good day. Likewise. Thank you all. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Modern Business Operations. You can see the show notes and all of the resources mentioned in today's episode at tonkin.com slash mbopod. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. 